Hey Habibis, just wanted to let you all know that Habib Please is part of the Harbinger Media Network. This network is super important to me and other leftists in Canada as we are a group of progressive voices creating independent media that challenges the predominant narratives told in right-wing and liberal media. We're also working in tandem and in cahoots with the Left Journal Passage as a founding partner to build a media ecosystem that creates a space for left and progressive voices to proliferate Canadian discourse. Passage has been doing amazing and awesome work covering some of the gaps that we presently see. So we see articles on the eviction blitzes, uh, media bias and framing, as well as very specific uh, articles tackling issues presently existing. So the wrongful uh, clawbacks of CERB that the Liberal government is attempting. Um, So yes, I wanted to recommend some shows that I personally love to listen to on the Harbinger Media Network. So Rob Rousseau's 49th Parahel, as well as Phil Rouge, which is an Indigenous storytelling series that features Indigenous stories uh, from communities in the far north of Quebec. Really, really, really recommend it. Um, giving both those shows a listen. As well, this episode was graciously produced by Andre Goulet, who's the executive director of Harbinger Media. And Harbinger is listener supported, so you can get subscriber specific content when you head over to harbingermedia.com and hit that subscribe button. You help promote this ecosystem, and you can also get some Harbinger Spotlight episodes, which is fun. And there's going to be some swag allegedly soon. So, hope you all enjoy this show and enjoy the network we're creating. Hey everyone, so this episode features our second chat with a member of parliament in front of the show, Leah Gazan. Gazan is a member of parliament for Winnipeg Centre. She's an educator by trade and has spent her life working for human rights on the local, national, and international stage. In our first episode ever of Hibifty Please with Leah Gazan, we did talk a bit about her activism and how she came from the movement, as well as how rad it is that she was there during OCA and like has been in solidarity for so many movements over the years. So uh, I'd give that episode a listen if you want to hear more about the motion she submitted, which is Motion 46, to convert the Canada Emergency Response Benefit into a permanent guaranteed livable income. So uh, Gazan is also the NDP critic for children, families, and social development, which is super important as well. And I think it shines through in her politics. And I think we had a very beautiful, lovely, vulnerable discussion. Um, and she is a member of the Wood Mountain Lakota Nation located in Saskatchewan Treaty 4 territory. And Ryan and I are often thinking about how to gain leftist wins, whether through electoral politics or outside of them. So it's always an absolute pleasure to talk to Leah because of her honesty and care for her community that comes um, from that history of working in social movements and that she still hears people out and is still deeply connected. And her office is staffed by these uh, rad young folks that Ryan and I also can with to plan these episodes and we see it in their politics so yeah hope you all enjoy this episode i really 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 love having these conversations with uh, mp gazan (laughs) 
Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Habibti, Please. We're very excited to have Leah Gazan with us once again to talk about a few uh, issues that are presently happening and to get an update on some things. Uh, Leah, thank you for joining us again. Nice to be here. And Ryan's going to lead off the show today. Yes. Yeah, so thank you for joining us again. It's it's always a pleasure to have you. We want to start off to talk talking about something that's in the news right now. Aaron O'Toole, the leader of the opposition currently, made comments this week that residential schools were meant to provide education and that the bad stuff came later. These comments show that the leader of the opposition knows, frankly, nothing about Canadian history um, and, and can be quite racist as well. For listeners who don't know, the residential school system was a system set up by the Canadian government in conjunction with Christian churches um, across the country in the late 1800s and ended in about 1996. It was designed with the specific intention of exterminating Indigenous children's culture. And what happened in those schools was a genocide. Thousands of children died. And that is what Aaron O'Toole recently called education. You, Leah, have been actively calling for O'Toole to resign. Why is that meaningful and necessary in this moment? Well, I just, I think, you know, there's there's no room uh, in this country for genocide deniers. Uh, those kinds of beliefs that are not based on historical facts specifically um, are very dangerous. Uh, we saw the same sort of behavior with Lynn Bayak. Uh, you know, many people across the country have certainly called for her resignation. I think for anybody who wants to pursue a, a position of power, uh, we need to be mindful uh, of those who are pursuing those uh, positions who are genocide uh, deniers. And so I think we need to have zero tolerance. Uh, I think it's it's more, it goes beyond just ignorance to dangerous. I think we need to call that out. And I, and I need, I believe that we need to take firm actions uh, when we see that kind of behavior happening, when people uh, absolutely clearly deny any form of genocide, including the genocide that occurred in residential schools. He's recently rescinded his comments. Um, I would say not in a meaningful way, obviously, but... Um, can you can you speak a bit to why, although he has rescinded these comments, uh, the hashtag uh, O'Toole resign is still trending and uh, genocide denier is still trending and why it's important to keep pushing that it these weren't one off comments? Well, those kinds of comments, those come from uh, deep, deep rooted beliefs. I mean, they're certainly not beliefs that are based on historical fact. Uh, you know, as somebody who taught uh, about uh, residential schools uh, for many years uh, within uh, the uni- at the University of Winnipeg, as somebody who has had intergenerational uh, impacts as a result of the residential schools, uh, those kinds of beliefs, you know, particularly for somebody who apparently uh, has a an education himself, those are deep-seated beliefs that you can't backtrack on. Those are deep-rooted values. I think we've seen that with Senator Bayak, who, you know, has been suspended, suspended, suspended. She comes back, she says the same thing. And I think those kinds of beliefs uh, uh, in a in 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 at in any country are dangerous, including Canada, when people are denying uh, acts of genocide. There's there's obviously an unequal kind of topography of Canadian racial inequity. And 11 years ago at the G20 summit, Justin Trudeau's predecessor Stephen Harper made comments too that were rather jarring that 
where he stated, we also have no history of colonialism, we being Canada. So we all have things that people admire about great powers and we don't threaten or bother them. And since this statement has happened, we've seen the TRC implemented five years ago. Um, Many recommendations have not been implemented. Uh, Sometimes the ones that have been implemented seem to be around... um, arts, culture, and sports. But the big one is that the federal liberal government admitted that um, they will not be able to eradicate the drinking water advisories that were broken, uh, or that that weren't broken, but that just have never been implemented. And I guess my, my big question is, why do you think it's difficult for them to do? And is there an actual reason that it's not happening that the public can understand? I think it's demonstrative of uh, the deep-rooted uh, uh, systemic racism uh, we have in this country, this normalization, as we spoke about before with Aaron O'Toole, just flippant, flippantly, you know, denying, uh, you know, the genocide that occurred in residential school with probably almost zero, almost zero little pushback uh, from members of parliament, uh, you know, uh, besides a few people, certainly in my caucus, that uh, pushed back, Um, you know, the fact that we can build, spend $18 billion on a TMX pipeline that uh, with all the impacts on climate will result in zero uh, profit, a 0% profit margin. Uh, yet, when it comes to clean drinking water, it's complicated. And, I, and I've said many times, I don't think um, many of the issues people call complicated are actually complicated. I think what's complicated is the fact that we don't honor human rights. And when you don't honor human rights and do what is necessary to honor human rights, including accessing clean drinking water, then it becomes complicated. Uh, the fact that, you know, first of all, the, the Liberals, you know, last Parliament didn't um, invest adequately in even ending all water boil advisories, extending it once again uh, in this in this parliament, uh, just shows uh, the uh, level of disregard and continued systemic racism that's perpetrated against Indigenous people in this country, including the fact that this current government is on their ninth, 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 ninth non-compliance order to immediately stop racially discriminating against First Nations kids living on reserve and and the Human Rights Tribunal ruling use deliberately racially discriminating. So, I mean, this is not a, a personal opinion of mine. This is something that has been noted by the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. And I think the failure of this government to act on it, uh, there's no excuses for it. Do you think the pandemic is sort of providing an additional excuse for the government to not take action on these things, whether it's boil water advisories or even just addressing any of the, t- the remaining TRC calls to action. Like I think only 10 have been implemented and there were 94 in total. Well, we know that uh, there was many people that were left behind uh, before the pandemic that will be further left behind after the pandemic. Uh, We know uh, in terms of uh, uh, recommendations and guidelines coming out from Health Canada that one of the the best preventions against COVID-19 is self-isolation, right? Social distance and frequent hand washing. That requires uh, proper housing uh, and access to clean drinking water. So the, the pandemic should have actually hurried uh, the process of providing uh, clean drinking water and dealing with some of the housing issues. So it's not, it's not, 
it's not surprising that in places like Shimadawa, uh, that have severe issues of overcrowding and housing, that they have a 70% test positivity rate uh, during COVID-19. So, you know, I, I often find whether it's, you know, coming out, coming out with the National Action Plan to address violence against Indigenous women uh, and girls and, and two-spirit, knowing that the violence has, for women particularly, and has increased 400 times in some places, that CERB has often been utilized as an excuse. But if you look at the statistics and what's going on, the, the pandemic should have actually pushed it quicker and I, and I say that because one of the first bailouts that happened uh, during COVID-19 was to uh, big corporations and big oil and big banks. You know, where do people fit into this? So, yeah, no, I, I don't think it is a good excuse. In fact, I think it, it makes it even more difficult for them to rationalize the fact that they're not addressing these uh, human rights matters uh, when people's lives are literally even more on the line than they were before. You brought up Senator Bayek, and I'm actually curious as to like what... Um, if any update is on that, like it's so hard to remove a senator from office unless they voluntarily resign and she's been kicked out of the conservative caucus. But like, it just seems like she faces no repercussions. I don't know. If well, she, I mean, she her. gets kicked out of the conservative caucus and then yeah. the leader of the conservative party has the same assertions. Right, exactly. You so. know, so so I mean, like and, and going back, I mean, there should be it is there should be zero tolerance in the House of Commons, who is tasked to make decisions uh, on behalf of all Canadians to have uh, people in positions of power that deny genocide. That is very dangerous to me. I think it goes beyond, uh, you know, um, you know, apologies for the sake of apologizing. I think it's concerning that Bayek has been kicked out of the Conservative caucus on Senate. We now have a Conservative leader who's saying the same thing. What's the consequence for this? And, and uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure right now it's targeted against Indigenous peoples, but who's next? I mean, those are deep-rooted values. So I think we need to take this pretty seriously. And, and prior to this, if I'm, I might be incorrect, but um, O'Toole was also, I think, xenophobic about China in one of his like very <laughs> first videos. Yeah. So, so again, like, who's next? I mean, when, I mean, and I spoke about, I've spoken a lot about Trump certainly uh, about this to say, you know, when somebody violates somebody's human rights. Who's next? Mm -hmm. I mean, th those kinds of behaviors uh, are certainly from from, you know, uh, my perspective, uh, dangerous for people who are seeking positions of power to lead countries. Uh, we've certainly, you know, I'm, you know, I, I, I think we certainly saw that with with Trump and some of his values and how dangerous they were. And uh, and I have been very open about uh, stating that you know Trump, Trump had has fascist ideologies, and I think we're seeing even in the transition or attempted transition of power, uh, those kinds of, of behaviors come out, and I, I think we need to be mindful of that. And I think Canadians deserve to have protections in place to to protect uh, all individuals residing in Canada. Thank you. What do you think about the UNDRIP implementation legislation? Um, I know it was largely designed by by Romeo Saganash. 
Um, but do you, do you think that this will have actual impacts on legal doctrines like the duty to consult or Aboriginal title? You know, it, it is uh, largely based on the work that was uh, on, on that was done on Romeo Sagan Ash's Bill 262. You know, I know that, uh, you know, the preamble in this one is actually uh, probably a beefed up preamble from from 262. And what it's saying is that the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples has application in Canadian law. It's not a Canadian version. What it's saying is that these human rights also apply in in human law. So I know there's been some criticism uh, about it. Um, I, I th- you know, I certainly support it. I think it's certainly worth at least voting on and going to committee and where we can uh, make amendments. But here's the thing. Uh, we currently live under uh, the Indian Act, uh, which is a human rights violating uh, document. I, I don't know many people besides uh, a few, really, that are fighting really hard not to replace uh, the Indian Act, which is a human rights violating document, um, with human rights, uh, the kinds of human rights that are articulated in the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. In saying that, I think, you know, moving forward, a lot of times it, it relates to process and and voices. So, I, you know, more so in terms of criticisms, I've heard about the bill, I've heard about the process. And so, you know, we'll see how things move forward. I certainly support the bill. You know, I certainly was a big proponent of Bill C-262. So we'll see where it goes. Hopefully we're not in an election in two minutes, but you never know, oh right? Boy. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Oh. And, and so uh, we, we talked a little bit about Trump before, but um, how do you how do you think Canada can have independent foreign policy that's not contingent on the U.S. and um, Ryan and I are always curious about this because our economy is so tied up with the U.S. and it's one of the main reasons we believe sometimes that the government is hesitant to act against the U.S.'s interests internationally. Yeah, so I mean, like I look at a lot of the, uh, I mean, just I can only speak on my behalf. Uh, about this, but I but I do look at matters of war, arms, deals as a matter of conscience. I, I know for myself, you know, my father was a peace activist. Uh, he was a beatnik, actually. My father, my father was a beatnik. I mean, this, this is a true story. You like this story? Who got fired from a job in the '60s for wearing a peace button? Like he was a peace activist before it was trendy. <laughs> It was like, it was like, you know, horrible behavior to yeah. fight for peace. And, you know, so, so that, those are my roots. Um, so, you know, I've spoken out against, for example, the Saudi arms uh, deal. Uh, you know, I've made very clear positions around our interference in places like Venezuela, for example, Bolivia, you know, I mean, many other places, you know, particularly as an Indigenous person standing in solidarity with Indigenous brothers and sisters that live in different parts uh, of the globe. Um, you know, I've, I've, you know, come out independently around my opposition to uh, the $19 billion uh, that we're spending on fighter jets, something that is so harmful, so harmful for our Mother Earth, but also results uh, in the loss of life, often civilians who have nothing to do with anything and children. So, I, I you know, is the, in terms of our uh, relationships with the United States, 
you know, I was really disappointed in the Liberal government about how they tiptoed uh, around Trump, mm-hmm. uh, who I uh, who I publicly called a fascist. I mean, let's get real. I don't know how much benefit we had, you know, not calling that out in terms of how we benefited as a country, uh, you know, including in the trades deal. So, you know, how we how we move forward. Uh, you know, I was more of a Bernie Sanders uh, AOC fan in the States. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, hopefully it'll be better than it was with Trump. Uh, than Trump uh, under Biden, I think anything uh pretty much would be better than Trump. So, you know, we'll see how things look moving forward. And, and I appreciate that mention of um, the Saudi arms deal, because what I was the next little question was about how Adam Vaughn has called to get Canada out of the Saudi Arabia arms deal and Canada's active participation in the killing of Yemeni people has been described as one of the worst humanitarian crises of our time. And I was going to ask, would you join him or in writing? I have already. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Too late. Too late. I've come out publicly saying, I'm in. I'm there. Okay, awesome. I know uh, Don Davies has as well. I know uh, Matt Green, uh, certainly in my caucus. There might be others, but... you know, I'm, I'm sure there will be others, but I know that there's, you know, people on, in our caucus that have taken very clear uh, positions around, um, you know, Canada's involvement with the arms trading with uh, Saudi Arabia. Thank you so much. Yeah, that was a big question for us um, that we wanted to ask. Thank you. We're, we want to get a Motion 46 update from you, uh, how that's been going since since you since we last talked about it, more people are talking about basic income. And, you know, we don't really know what the status is in Parliament, but it seems like outside of Parliament, more people are talking about it. After in the new year, I'm looking at putting forward a unanimous consent motion. I just came from an all uh, party anti-poverty caucus uh, this morning, in fact, and we do have cross-party support for guaranteed livable basic income from all parties. You know, Trudeau came out the other day saying, you know, it's not on the radar, it's not on the table as they, you know, gouge people who got the CERB, much of of which was because of the way they rolled it out. And I mean, people are pursuing a class action lawsuit uh, at this point around the CERB. I think that we need to keep pushing. I think that we need to make this a key election issue, uh, a key platform issue that will force parties to uh, come out with a position on guaranteed livable basic income. There is much research uh, that has been done, whether it's in Manitoba with the income study um, that shows that it has higher costs on the front end, less costs on the back end. And it's not a new concept. Like, let's get real. We do have guaranteed income uh, programs in Canada, not livable, OAS, EI, uh, you know, even uh, social assistance or, or examples of income guarantees, all not livable. All I'm proposing in my motion is to top those up and to expand them out people with severe uh, mental health and trauma supports uh, who can't work, guaranteed livable basic income. The 70% of adults with severe intellectual disabilities, 70% who live in poverty, guaranteed livable basic income who might not be able to work. Like, let's get real. It's, you know, the EI system was designed for white working men. During the Great Depression, we now see ourselves in the greatest greatest recession 
population since the Great Depression. And even worse, because it's also a health crisis. It's not just an economic crisis. It's also a health crisis. And we need to update our social safety net to reflect uh, the, the change, our changing world, to reflect our uh, changing understand understanding of inclusion, including women. Like if you look at the call to action, one of the sorry, the call one of the calls to justice that came out of the. Um, in, uh, inquiry into murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls, one of them was to put in place a guaranteed livable basic uh, uh, income for all, because we know there's a direct correlation with women and young women staying in violent situations and income. So uh, I'm hoping that my motion uh, passes with unanimous consent. I'm not convinced. It will not be a recorded vote. Like one person can say nay and it, it dies. In saying that, Let's keep the movement going. We have uh, almost 50,000 signatures on that petition uh, that we put out. Uh, we have broad-based support from individuals uh, across the country. And uh, we just have to keep pushing forward. We're curious. We understand your thoughts on Bill C-7, the medical assistance in dying bill might be nuanced. Um, and we know that that came as a response to a Quebec Superior Court decision that found the existing regulations um, that required, a, I believe, a reasonable prospect of death um, to be unconstitutional. You know, but the Bill C-7 it's worried many Black and Indigenous people and disabled people for a wide variety of reasons. So I'm just curious as to what your thoughts are um, on that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure. So I did vote in favor uh, of Bill C-7, uh, knowing it would go uh, to Senate, uh, feeling fairly uh, um, confident that they would make amendments uh, in Senate and that it would come back. Uh, for a vote. I would have to say, and I've been very uh, clear with people, it's probably the hardest vote I'll probably ever have to make uh, and decision I'll ever have to make as a member of parliament um, in the House of Commons. Um, I'm hoping that through the amendments in Senate, uh, that some of the concerns that have been raised about uh, the bill are amended. I, I say that because I've been working very closely with advocates in the disability community who don't oppose MAID. They oppose um, issues they, they are identifying in the bill. So part of the reason I actually decided to vote on it uh, knowing it would go to Senate was because of the aggressive way the Conservative Party was fighting to uh, overthrow uh, Bill C-7. Yet, anytime I asked them a question about the issues that were coming from uh, disability advocates about their actual issues with the bill, which was uh, ensuring people have everything they need to live in dignity. So I'd say, okay, well, great. You're talking about dignity. Uh, then do you support a guaranteed livable basic income? Do you support investments in accessible, affordable uh, social housing? Do you support then massive investments uh, in providing people with disabilities everything they need to live in dignity, whether it's glasses, hearing aids, medication, uh, things to uh, assist with uh, mobility? One answer I got was, you know, if you want that, then support the resource extraction industry. No lie. It's posted on Twitter. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Uh, and, and I got a clear no and, and a total sw side swipe from uh, a conservative opposition leader, uh, Aaron O'Toole, when I asked that question. 
And so I think it warranted more study. I think it's good that it's at the Senate now for more study. We'll see what it looks like when it comes back. And uh, so it's not over. Uh, but but in, in saying that, um, I, I do feel that, uh, you know, just based on my own personal experience with uh, my own family members, my parents particularly, uh, you know, a very dear friend of mine uh, who passed away from MS, uh, you know, all those considerations, uh, you know, come to mind when you're making these votes, when, when you talk about dignity. But here's the thing. If we're going to talk about dignity, we can't talk about one side of dignity, whether it's dying of or living. Uh, it has to be both. And that is dignity. That is giving people what they need to make dignified choices. And I feel strongly about that. So I'm hoping that, you know, people get the amendments they like. It comes back. It's workable. I know uh, Minister Lametti has indicated in in the press, I, I mean, I haven't spoken to him, but in the press I read that he's open to amendments. So we'll see what it looks like when it comes back. Thank you so much. And thank you for sharing that with us in such a deep way. And, and I think it's good for people to see this side of politicians and their thinking. And our last big question is, um, we heard that there's going to be a convention. Like, what are your plans? Or do you have any policy resolutions you're bringing forward or that you want to see become policy as as part of the convention? Well, um, policies come from uh, the EDA. Like Mm -hmm. any sort of resolutions have to be um, drafted by the EDA. We're actually supposed to you know, keep a distance. And, and I think well, that's good with our riding. Oh, sorry, Electoral District Association. And I think it's good because they oversee the whole riding. So, so I think it's good to keep that distance in terms of accountability measures, to be perfectly honest. Uh, you know, who knows who's going to be there. So I think it's good that uh, there's those kind of rules um, in place. In saying that, I know that there's discussion between EDAs to push forward very progressive um, resolutions for the party to look at. I think, um, you know, conventions are a really good opportunity to, you know, discuss things like, you know, investments in uh, in uh, fighter jets and Palestine and, yeah. you know, uh, like, I mean, it, it, you know, positions around even uh, pipeline development uh, in the country, uh, you know, uh, in terms of how it intersects or, uh, with with failing to uphold human rights. I mean, like this, these are really good spaces to do that. So I'm really looking forward to convention. I'm hoping that EDAs work together uh, to put forward a bold uh, progressive agenda. So we'll see what comes out of that. Thank you so much. So that sort of concludes what, what we have today. Um, can you tell people where they can find you online? Okay, you can find me at Leah Gazan on Twitter and Leah Gazan MP on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you so much for joining us again. And we'll link that for people. Yeah, thank you. It's always a pleasure having you on. Oh, thanks so much and keep doing what you're doing. It's great. Hey, these episodes take a small team. Solo episodes are hosted by me, Ashwalina Khan. American political episodes are co-hosted by Dawson Kimian. Canadian political episodes are co-hosted by Ryan Deshpande. Music and art for Hibipti Please is done by Post America and Johnny Zapras. 
editing is done by Johnny Zapras. Production assistance by Raymond Hanano and Dawson Kimian, and sometimes some other Habibis on our team. Consider giving to us on Patreon to help fuel our team with chai and other fun things at Patreon forward slash Habibti, please. And you can find us on Twitter at Habibti, please, with a B. This takes a bit of money and your support helps us carry on the show and continue producing some unique content. So it's much appreciated. Yalla, let's grab some tea and shisha. Shisha.